0: Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu recently pledged to temporarily pause his judicial reforms due to widespread public resistance among the Israeli public, fearful of a slide towards a more autocratic Israel. Which brings us to the question of how we got here, and what may happen next. From Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I'm your host, Drew Starbuck. With me today are two fellow senior hall students. Covering the domestic situation today, our analyst today is Dovid Holtzman. Hi, Dovid. Hi, Drew. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good to be here. And focusing on the international aspect today is Trisha Valian. Hi, Drew. Hi, Trisha. How are you doing today?
1: Pretty good, thanks.
0: Thank you for coming on the show. Now, I just want to get some background information on Israel, guys, before we get into what these judicial reforms actually entail for Israel's government and for the Israeli public at large. So I'll come to you, Dovid, as our domestic analyst. How is Israel's
2: government constructed? So Israel's government is composed of three branches, which are really two. There's the Supreme Court, as there is a Supreme Court in America. And there is the Knesset, which fulfills the role of the legislative branch in passing legislation. And then there is the prime minister who is elected as a function of the Knesset. On a usual election cycle, elections for the Knesset occur every four years. Voters cast ballots for parties, not individual candidates, and each party is given a share of the 120 seat legislative body, which is proportional to the amount of votes it received in the election. As no single party has ever won an outright majority in the Knesset, legislation is passed through coalitions. To pass legislation, the Knesset needs only a simple majority, or 61 seats. So the opportunity is available for an extreme or radical coalition to push its agenda on the rest of the country with only a simple majority. So you mentioned the different branches of government in Israel David, and how
0: it's very easy for a more radical coalition to easily press more radical policies within the legislative body. But you mentioned like the Supreme Court acted as a judicial branch, but there's not a three part system like the United States. So.
2: Is there any other big differences between the United States and Israel's democracy? Absolutely. And when you talk about radical coalitions or legislation, the first thing you want to be concerned about in a healthy democracy is a balance of power between the different branches of government. And specifically in the case of Israel, what brings us to this moment in Israeli history is the balance of power between the Knesset, the legislative branch, and the Israel High Court of Justice, the Supreme Court, the judicial branch. So the key difference in understanding how the Israeli political system functions differently than the American political system is understanding that Israel does not actually govern based on any sort of constitution. When Israel was founded in 1948, its Declaration of Independence called for the rapid drafting of a constitution that would determine the structures and functions of those structures and government. But in what came to be known as a Harari decision, no constitution was ever drafted. Instead, piecemeal bits of legislation called basic laws have been passed, 14 of them over the years from 1948 until now, that slowly over time have come to form not a constitution in essence, but a constitution in effect. So with this lack of a constitution,
0: how important is the Supreme Court within Israel? compared to the, say, the United States system, which actually has a set constitution by which they dedicate their
2: rulings to, judge their rulings on. So in American history, there's the famous case of Marbury versus Madison in 1803, because one important function of the American judiciary, which was never actually granted to the justice system, was the right of judicial review, the right of the court system to take a law that was passed by the legislative branch and say, this law violates our constitution and this law is therefore invalid. So in Israel, a similar case to Marbury v. Madison occurred in the 1990s. And the case was United Mizrahi Bank versus Migdal Cooperative Village. And this case came after the Knesset passed two more basic laws, the basic law of human dignity and liberty and the basic law of freedom of occupation. And after the passing of these two laws, The Israel chief justice of the Supreme Court declared in effect that these two laws gave the Israel Supreme Court the right of judicial review, especially when it comes to legislation that violates human rights. So this was a landmark decision with Israel kind of set the stage for basically
0: a more balance of power between the two two branches of government.
2: That's exactly the case is that the Knesset would pass laws and they would be filtered through the Supreme Court which would determine with a special focus on if any laws were violating the human rights of Israelis, of Palestinians, of, of foreigners, of anyone really. And this broadness of what violates human rights led to a bit of a blowback from the right, which we will come to. Yeah. Before we come to that, David, thank you for that very
0: good summary of israeli's government structure i kept drawing back to the comparison of between the united states and israel because i do think the american israeli relationship is very important when we come to this topic of what is really going on in israel so as our international analyst Tricia, how would you describe the history of the american israeli relationship
1: so the history is very long and complex um seeing as Israel and the U.S. have a long history of cooperations as the United States was the first country to recognize Israel as a state back in its foundation in 1948. And because of the shared values of democracy and security, Israel has been considered a major non-NATO ally with the United States since then. So keeping Israel as an ally has been long in the interest of the United States as their democratic nature allows for cooperation and their proximity to other Middle Eastern countries has presented the U.S. with opportunities to gain intelligence regarding terrorism, nuclear proliferation, and general Middle Eastern politics. As well as the security and political interests, economic interests have also been a foundation of the Israel-United States alliance. As Israel and the US have had a free trade agreement since 1985, facilitating economic interdependence as the US is Israeli's largest trade partner And both are heavily involved in manufacturing investment in both countries. So it's a very close-knit relationship over the past few years.
0: Yeah, and what about more recent developments in this relationship over the past couple of administrations?
1: The most notable one was with former President Trump's administration. The former president had a close relationship with Prime Minister Netanyahu during the time in which their terms overlapped, as Trump was able to support the right-wing agenda Netanyahu had at the time, which we can see has continued today as he enters his third term. During the Trump administration, the U.S. was pulled out of the previously brokered nuclear deal with Iran, which was not supported by Netanyahu at the time, as he felt like it would not limit Iranian nuclear development, which was a major concern for Israel, as Iran had been a prime adversary at that time, therefore earning Trump the favor of the prime minister. Another major aspect of the Israeli-U.S. relations during Trump's term was the announcement that the United States would support Israeli settlements in the West Bank, an area the Palestinian Authority claimed to be part of their territory, which resulted in elevated tensions between Palestinians and Israelis and was seen as a dramatic change that had previously considered the settlements illegal. An additional aspect of this was the Trump administration moved the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, And this was a major point of contention because it declared the holy site of Jerusalem as a political site as well, which showed them siding more with Israel than Palestine in the time of conflict.
0: And Jerusalem also holds important within Islam as the third holy site within Mm -hmm. that religion after Mecca and Medina. You mentioned the close relationship between the Trump administration, especially the friendship between Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu. How has that changed under the Biden administration?
1: So the Biden administration, from the very beginning, Netanyahu made it no secret that he was particularly fond of the Biden administration as he openly backed Donald Trump during the 2020 election, most likely hoping for a continuation of their previous partnership, which would allow Netanyahu the space to pursue right-wing policies and actions without receiving pushback from one of their closest allies, the U.S. And then as the protests and judicial reform has come out of Israel, the Biden administration has responded remarkably quickly to this mission which manifested in a warning from president biden that netanyahu quote cannot continue down this road end quote as well as a denial from the president that he would invite netanyahu to the white house making it abundantly clear that the u.s wants to push back against the prime minister's actions
0: yep do you think trisha as our international analyst of we're going to get into the more specifics of the you mentioned the more right-wing policies or government within Israel, how that plays into effect the United States, both as there's been more growing criticism of Israel within American politics, especially on the left.
1: Yes, absolutely. Democrats in Congress have made their concerns for the Israeli people very vocal. And this is attributed to President Biden's response to Netanyahu and how he has to take a more intense stance against the prime minister if the overhaul mission becomes permanent and continues on.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That kind of brings to the attention, I think, Trisha, of the current domestic political status within Israel. So I'll turn back to you, David. Of, you mentioned the coalition system earlier. Can you speak more on this divide between parties within Israel and how that
2: has resulted in the current situation? So the current political situation within Israel can be thought of as a function of the religious divide within Israel. Famously, in 2016, American Secretary of State John Kerry said, Israel can either be Jewish or democratic, it cannot be both. And you can think of Jewish and democratic as two extremes of not really political thought, but lifestyle, and they correspond to the political situation in Israel. Those two poles of religious and democratic largely map on to the Israeli left and the Israeli right. The Israeli left prioritizes the democratic part, democracy, human rights, and does not concern itself culturally much with religion. While Jewish identity is an extremely strong factor on the Israeli left, most non-religious Israelis prioritize human rights and values that come with the liberal secular democracy over those of religion. The right, on the other hand, especially the religious right, is quite different to discuss specifically the religious Zionist and Haredi parties, which are inspiring much of the current political conflict, it is much more important for them for Israel to be a religious state than for it to be a democratic one. Now, obviously, this is an overbroad generalization, which is made to clarify the issue. But with all new ones taken, there are many elements of this that are true. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think is
0: important to know for our listeners is the magnitude of elections within the past few years of when building a coalition system and a government system like Israel, you have to assemble a winning coalition to be able to pass legislation. And with Prime Minister Netanyahu, whose current coalition has come a lot of repeated elections to get to this point amidst many scandals. So do you think that the Israeli people are kind of burnt out to a certain extent on the political scene?
2: Well, certainly. There have been five elections in the last four years in Israel when normally there's only one election every four years. And Benjamin Netanyahu managed to hold on to a coalition in four out of five of these elections, including the most recent one. But in his first three coalitions, each time they managed to fall apart within a year or a few months of an election. So after five rounds of elections, Netanyahu's coalition has largely had enough and with a relatively stable 64 seat majority in the Knesset, his coalition has moved to promote legislation that would you can say enhance the power of his coalition, even if it serves multiple agendas all at the same time. Not
0: wanting to lose power and get into another election when there have been so many recently. You mentioned. Netanyahu's success in organizing winning coalitions in the past. What is the difference
2: within the composition of this coalition compared to the previous ones? So when forming a majority coalition after the November 2022 election, Netanyahu was forced to include within this coalition members of the rather more ultra nationalist, right type, religious Zionist party, including famously Itamar Ben Gvir, who he named national security minister.
0: Do you want to go any more into Itamar Ben-Gvir, Dovid,
2: on like the specifics of why he's been considered by many a controversial figure within Israeli politics? Certainly, Itamar Ben-Gvir. It's no exaggeration to call him an extremist. He's an unabashed kahanist. He hangs in his home, at least until the year twenty twenty, a photo of Baruch Goldstein who killed twenty nine Muslims at the Tomb of the Patriarchs in nineteen ninety four. Ben Gvir has been indicted at least 53 times and has been convicted on eight of those charges. But Ben Gvir controls 14 critical seats that are essential for Netanyahu to maintain a stable coalition. And with Israel not wanting to move into elections a sixth time in recent years, Netanyahu was forced to allow Ben Gvir's priorities to proceed within the Knesset And these priorities famously include judicial reform. But that sort
0: of more radical extremism or that policies, politician gets me to kind of my next point, which I'll turn to you, Tricia. of what does this mean for the Palestinians of you have a more much more radical right wing coalition, perhaps in the history of Israel for a long, a long time and increasing settlements in areas of the West Bank. So what does this really mean for the Israel-Palestinian relationship?
1: So as one could probably assume, it doesn't look great for the Palestinians on this front. So one of the most prevalent aspects, of course, of Israeli foreign policy and their relation to other nations is their relationship with Palestine. It's a conflict we've seen many times in the news in the past, and it's one that's going to continue to be prevalent for a long time. This has been brought into the mainstream news, especially now in the wake of the biggest demonstrations in Israel. So one of the instances was in early March, there was a spike in Palestinian and Israeli tensions as violence emerged as Israeli settlers in the occupied West Bank Territory rampaged the Palestinian village of Huwara, torching cars and homes in response to two Israeli brothers dying in an attack by a Palestinian gunman. In the wake of these incidents, Bezalel Smotrich, the head of the pro-Settler Party within Netanyahu's coalition, declared that, quote, Huwara needs to be erased, unquote, and that it is a, quote, hostile village that has become a terrorist outpost, end quote, that poses a threat to the Israeli settlers in the area. These comments sparked immediately backlash from the United States State Department, who called upon Netanyahu to publicly reject these sentiments, even though he has called for harsher actions against Palestinians himself, and upon entering his third term, has introduced two major ideas, the judicial overhaul and the intention to further Israeli occupation of the West Bank, both of which would be at the detriment to Palestinians.
0: Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned the Palestinians' fear of like the Israeli government's support for settlers. What are their What is their perspective on ju- these judicial reforms being posed at the moment?
1: Their view on this essentially is one of it's, it's a very interesting one, which is it shows the distinct lack of Palestinian citizens in Israel participating in the protests, um, especially now since they're more at risk because of the court overhauls are carried out. So this is kind of an interesting question as to why they're not protesting, why aren't they trying to make their voices heard? And because of the system of checks and balances would be damaged, minorities the government has already had hostility towards. In this case, predominantly the Islamic Palestinian community would have less protection as judicial review would not yet be able to vet out unjust laws from being passed. So despite the risk posed here, many Palestinians are sitting out because they feel as though the demonstrations are too narrowly focused on the overhaul to include them in the issues they feel that need to be addressed, such as the Israeli occupation in the West Bank, the oppression experience at the hands of the government, and the general racism towards Palestinians in Israel. Amal Orbi, a Palestinian-Israeli lawyer and activist, states, quote, where were you, where were you during our struggle, quote, in regards to the fervor at which Israeli citizens have been protesting the court overhaul when the courts have been unfairly biased against Palestinians for the past 55 years. So essentially, we see a distinct lack of Palestinian voices within the demonstrations we see right now because they already see this system as being biased against them. And the protests are strictly for the overhaul and aren't really helping the Palestinians in any way, like directly. They see it as you were absent for some of our other issues, so why should we support you on this? not going to make much of a difference in the long run because the system is already biased against them. This is a very unique viewpoint on the court overhaul because from their perspective, the courts were, like I said, corrupt and biased long before Netanyahu introduced intentions for them. But at that point, it wasn't a concern for the general Israeli public because they were still protected. The contempt towards Palestinian issues and the lack of support from Israeli citizens remains a point of extreme tension. And it's only been exasperated by Netanyahu's goals and the demonstrations as Palestinians show little hope for justice in their future, regardless of the court overhaul being continued or permanently halted.
0: And to dive more into the specifics of that, Trisha already mentioned how many Palestinians view the system as already biased to a certain extent and that many Israeli citizens are concerned because now it's their rights that are to a certain being threatened. And we've seen and heard a general overview of the reaction to these judicial reforms. So I'll turn to you, Dovid, and say, what is specifically about these judicial reforms proposed by Prime Minister Netanyahu that is scaring so many people? And why is there this widespread public resistance amidst the
2: fear that Israel is turning more authoritarian. So after the Constitutional Revolution of the 1990s, when the Israel Court of High Justice, the Supreme Court, claimed for itself the right for judicial review, this right was not respected among many on the political right who viewed that the Supreme Court, as the popular expression went, was practically a branch of Meretz, Meretz being a rather dovish left-wing Israeli party. So. There are three specific Supreme Court cases, which many on the Israeli right believe were hyper-partisan or biased. And these three cases were the invalidation of 4,000 settlements on the West Bank, which the Supreme Court retroactively invalidated. That was one, there was the rejection of appeals against the peace treaty between Israel and Lebanon. Peace treaty specifically focusing on gas pipelines and trade and many on the right challenged this by the supreme court and these challenges were dismissed in what they felt was a partisan matter and bringing it to the current moment in january the supreme court ruled that Aryeh derry the interior minister in netanyahu's coalition could not in fact serve on the coalition after which netanyahu was forced to fire derry in what came to be known as the derry decision this came after judicial reform had already kicked off and only hardened Netanyahu's resolve to limit the power of the Supreme Court, which he viewed as a branch of the political left in Israel. And to understand that, it's important to understand how the members of the Supreme Court are chosen to be on the Supreme Court. There are 15 justices on the Israeli Supreme Court, and each of them are chosen by the Judicial Selection Committee. It's a committee of nine. Now, there are two parties, essentially, on this committee. Five members of the committee are of the, quote, party of the courts. One is the chief justice of the court, two other members of the court, and two members of the Israel Bar Association. The other four are generally represented by the ruling party in the Knesset. So the Supreme Court has, in a sense, a a 5-4 vote to control who the successors are on the Supreme Court. Now. Many on the Israeli right believe this is dangerous because think about it from the American perspective. Imagine if Clarence Thomas and uh, Antonin Scalia, who's no longer with us, or Samuel Alito were able to select their successors on the American Supreme Court. The American Supreme Court is perceived now largely as almost a function of the political right and faith in it has been eroding for that purpose. And imagine how much worse that would be if the court could select who sat on it. Well, that's the case in the Israeli Supreme Court. And that brings us to the first of the judicial reform proposals. So
0: what, in a sense, of this proposal could be like a threat to what there's been widespread protests in Israel about amidst a fear of human rights being affected if
2: the power of the Supreme Court is limited. How would that exactly come into play? So there are three elements, three individual pieces of judicial reform, and each of them on its own poses its own unique sets of dangers. The first is an alteration to the Judicial Selection Committee that controls who the next justices of the Supreme Court are, whereas now there's a 5-4 party majority, so to speak, in favor of the court, this would move that majority to be in favor of the ruling coalition of the Knesset so that the ruling coalition would be able to, without any check, decide who is on the Supreme Court. Now, naturally, and especially as Israel demographically has been moving more and more to the right over years and over decades, the left is concerned that with a rightward move, minority rights and rights of left-wing and secular and non religious, and as you mentioned, Palestinian, Trish, uh, could be subject to the whims of an Israeli Knesset majority on the right that is not looking like it's going to go away soon, anytime in the next 20 years. The second element of judicial reform is that the Israel Court of High Justice would not be able to overturn basic laws, and judicial reform would be eliminated for laws that the Knesset passes that have that basic status, that they're essentially constitutional. And the third one, the most controversial one, came to be known as the override clause. The override clause says that the Knesset would be able to overturn any decision the Supreme Court makes with a simple 61 seat majority, specifically as it relates to politics and the court's role in protecting human rights across Israel. Many from all sides of the political spectrum in Israel and abroad fear that this would limit any constitutional role the Israeli court system would have. Well, thank you for that summary. That
0: sort of more radical unchecked power of over the executive branch, the legislative branch, over the judicial branch, when you mentioned over there's always been this concern in Israel of balance of power between the different branches of government. Part of the reason I imagine there's been widespread protests since we've kind of covered a lot of different areas of the topic. I want to get some final thoughts from you both. Um, I think I'll come to you first, Trisha, for one of our final questions of what do you think the repercussions of this will be as there's been a temporary halt of these reforms by Prime Minister Netanyahu, but he's indicated a desire to carry them out anyway within the future. So what do you think the repercussions of this will be and what do you expect from the future at the current moment?
1: So if he continues on with his mission in the uh, court overhaul, I think some of the repercussions, as David was discussing earlier, will really come into play when it comes to the human rights within Israel, with the left-wing Israelis as well as the Palestinians seeing a bigger mode of oppression through the court system as another avenue to oppress Palestinian voices and other things like that. And I think another thing we'll need to be paying attention to is how this puts tensions on the US's relations with Israel. As a major democracy in the world who values human rights, freedom, democratic institutions, obviously this goes against some of our main values even though it is one of our biggest allies and we have many interests in the area, it's gonna put a lot of pressure on the presidential administration to respond aptly and make sure that we can't keep supporting them if they're doing these things, but we need to be able to keep our interests aligned with theirs as well. So it definitely creates this tension, I think, that we'll have to see in the future.
2: David? I think it's possible to discuss the ramifications of judicial reform from three different perspectives. The first is the exacerbation of the religious divide between the Israeli right And the israeli left this is a demographic trend that's expected to continue over decades and it will be interesting to see how that affects the political situation the second is in terms of national security while netanyahu restored defense minister yoav Gallant to the defense minister post after firing him how judicial reform affects the appearances of the army as being maybe a partisan institution has significant implications for israel's national security status and the mandatory draft and the perception of how that itself could be partisan. And finally, Israel is scheduled to pick up judicial reform again on April 30th after the Passover break. And when this comes back before the Knesset, it will be a game of chicken between Netanyahu's coalition in Knesset and the mass demonstrations of hundreds of thousands of people in the streets of Tel Aviv and across the country to see who will back down because no side wants to. This has been a great discussion. David, Tricia, thank you so
0: much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: It's been a pleasure, Drew. Joining me now to round out some of the headlines this week is our news briefer, Eric Bunce.
1: Hey, Eric. Hey, Drew.
0: So what headlines do you have for us
3: this week? So I have U.S. acknowledges botched evacuation in Afghanistan. French President Macron urges China to negotiate with Russia. And Lebanese militias fire a large missile barrage into Israel.
0: Some important stories to cover then. Let's start off with the story of the Afghanistan evacuation.
3: Okay, so government officials have acknowledged last Thursday that evacuations should have been begun earlier during the U.S. pullout of Afghanistan in 2021. This admittance was tucked away in a review document commissioned by the Biden administration following the withdrawal. While President Biden originally defended his handling of the evacuation, an ISIS bombing that killed 170 civilians and 13 U.S. personnel quickly soured public opinion. According to the administration, official policy has changed to prioritize earlier evacuations when faced with a degrading security situation.
0: A startling revelation, and one that almost demands further questioning. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned ongoing negotiations between China and France?
3: Yeah, so French President Emmanuel Macron visited China last week to meet with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Macron was joined by EU Commission Chief Ursula von der Leyen in asking the Chinese leader to bring Russia to the new negotiating table. The meeting was described by French officials as frank and friendly. Having met with Russian President Vladimir Putin just weeks before the invasion, Macron has now met with all major players in the war and hopes to position himself as an international peace broker.
0: A development to keep an eye on, for sure. And our final story?
3: Yes. So Lebanese militias have fired a heavy barrage of missiles into northern Israel last Thursday in one of the largest escalations between the two countries for years. The attack which Israeli officials blamed on the Palestinian militias in Lebanon, appears to be in retaliation for a police raid on a mosque in Jerusalem the day before. All this comes in the middle of the holy periods of Ramadan, Passover, and Easter representing all three Abrahamic faiths. The attack appears to be the largest since Israel and Hezbollah fought a full-scale war in 2006.
0: Thank you very much for coming on, Eric.
3: It's good to be back on.
0: Now that is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. The show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Jasmine DeLeon, associate producers Eric Bunsen, Kasha Kostraba, technical producers Andrew Rukulia, Juliana Mori, and Bobby Kyle, and of course, your host, Drew Starbuck. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current. Current with us and catch us on the waves every sunday at 8 30 a.m on 89.5 fmwsou until next time thank you